Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including eBooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. You're listening to New Books in Geography, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm your host for today, Stentor Danielson, from the Department of Geography, Geology, and the Environment at Slippery Rock University. Today, I'll be talking to Matthew Huber, author of Climate Change as Class War, Building Socialism on a Warming Planet, published this year by Verso. Dr. Huber, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. And so just to, to start off, I think this is the first time that I've had a guest on who I knew personally before reaching out about doing the, the podcast. So just, you know, so our listeners know, uh, Matt and I overlapped in our PhD programs at Clark University. I think you were started one year after me. Is that right? 2004. Yeah. yeah. So, <laughs> yeah. so to, to start us off, uh, why don't you tell our listeners a bit more about your background and how you came to write this particular book? Well, um, yeah, so I kind of got, went to grad school with sort of broad interest in the intersection of Marxism and environment. And that at first took me to sociology. um, And I was studying with a sort of ecological Marxist at Northeastern University um, named Danny Faber. but it was during my master's. <laughs> this is, as I'm sure you uh, have heard before, uh, Stentor, that is during my master's where I discovered that geography existed, <laughs> and and that it was a rich field of of um, not only uh, Marxist geography was this thriving subdiscipline, but also environmental issues are sort of at the core of what geographers do looking at nature-society relations. So once I realized all the work happening in geography, I quickly decided I wanted to do my PhD there. And I I did my PhD on uh, sort of the political economy of oil and suburbanization in the United States and how uh, oil kind of powered this geography of of privatism. and, And I argue sort of laid the basis for the kind of rightward or neoliberal shift of American politics, this sort of petro-fueled private way of living that increasingly created this kind of populist hostility towards um, the public sector in general, government and taxes and all the rest. Um, 
So I was very sort of deeply embedded in kind of this, these conversations that, that are in kind of Marxist geography. Um, but I've sort of become more aware recently that uh, Marxist geography is very comfortable, you know, with this kind of anti-capitalist perspective. Um, you know, we read our David Harvey, we, we read Capital by Marx, we, and we develop these really sophisticated crit- critiques of capitalism and, and capital, and, and, and we're really good at that. But it was about, you know, like many others, <laughs> around 2015 when um, uh, we had an actual viable um, presidential campaign with someone, you know, claiming the, the label of socialism, democratic socialism, and Bernie Sanders. And, and then you, once uh, Trump won in 2016, you see the explosion of the Democratic Socialists of America. I became much more interested in um, kind of thinking strategically about how we can bring together some of these ecological Marxist ideas um, and, and, and think strategically about how we can actually, you know, combine a kind of socialist politics with a, a larger climate politics. Um, and, and that kind of work led me to focus a lot more of my energy on writing in more public outlets like Jacobin Magazine or the American Prospect or whatever to try to kind of articulate, a, a, you know, a socialist climate politics that I feel like was somewhat confused and lacking at the time. And so, so, you know, that's kind of, I actually proposed this new book in 2017 and took me quite a while to slog through it. (laughs) But this is kind of the product of trying to grapple really with strategic political questions about, you know, how to think about a broader working class movement, a broader socialist movement, and uh, a broader climate movement. So, All right. Uh, and so you open the book on kind of a refreshingly pessimistic uh, note by saying that, you know, despite all the, the media attention and the new technologies that are coming out and Donald Trump losing the election, uh, the climate movement is currently losing. Mm-hmm. Uh, so what's the kind of criteria or evidence by which you would judge the climate movement to be currently losing? There's really only one metric that matters, and it's emissions. And as you may have heard um uh, after a significant dip in emissions in 2020, which for obvious reasons, we had a worldwide recession and a global pandemic and basically a shutdown of much of the economy, uh, which is not how we want decarbonization to go. Um, but in 2021, emissions skyrocketed back up and they have increased probably at the highest level in several years. And um, there's a lot of expectations that they will increase again in 2022. So as long as emissions are increasing, we know we're losing. In fact, a lot of climate scientists would say, even if we're reducing emissions by a marginal amount every year, we're still losing the, the, the battle because we actually need to reduce emissions at a much more radical um, clip over the next uh, you know, 10 to, to 40 years. And, and, and it's just not happening. And, and, and it's become, since I've finished up the book, it's become even more alarming, I'd say, in 2022, when not only are emissions rising, but we're seeing a massive boom in fossil fuels right now, where 
oil and gas companies have announced some of their most profitable uh, earnings uh, for over a decade. Um, and not just oil and gas, the worst fossil fuel that we need to worry about is coal. And coal is, uh, as the Financial Times reported recently, going through a series of windfall profits um, because of the surging demand for coal, partly to make up for some of the shortfalls from uh, Russian oil and gas uh, due to the invasion of Ukraine, um, but also because of um, surging demand in the sort of post-COVID sort of weird supply chain situation. And so fossil fuel companies are as profitable as ever. Emissions are rising. you know, the science is clear that both of those things are really not compatible <laughs> with a stable climate. And so, yeah, it seems pretty clear if you go beyond the hype and all the, the sort of projected um, targets that different states have announced that aren't binding, by the way, like the, the Paris Treaty is not a binding treaty, <laughs> like all these projections and all these kind of hype uh, statements about how we're going to you know, green the financial system or, or we're going to lower emissions by this amount. I mean, it's a bunch of rhetoric, but when you look materially at what's happening, it's, it's pretty clear um, we're still losing and emissions are still rising. So we really need to confront that fact. All right. So yeah, we'll, we'll start now here with the bad news and hopefully by the end of the interview, you'll be able to point us in, in a, a way forward with this. Um, but so your your title of your book says class war, and so we should probably start out by clarifying how you're defining class, because the way that that term gets used a lot by people, even in the, the climate movement, isn't the same as the more sort of classically Marxist definition that you're you're working with. Exactly. Yeah. So there's actually been a huge surge of interest in climate change as a problem of it's often framed in terms of inequality, which obviously we've there's been a lot of attention on inequality recently. And so um, a lot of scholarship and a lot of uh, analysis has really focused on how if you measure the rich, the richest people in, in uh, the world, they often have a much higher carbon footprint. Um, And you can trace this by looking at people's consumption expenditures, but also just doing some rough analysis of their income and making some kind of implicit uh, uh, projections about how they might spend their income. Um, And so that is uh, and you can actually, you know, Oxfam uh, released this really influential report called Extreme Carbon Inequality. Thomas Piketty, the famous analyst of inequality, did a similar type of analysis where they find things like, you know, the top 10% of rich people are responsible for 50% of global emissions. But what I point out is that that's a pretty simple uh, analysis of of class that is based essentially on income and consumption practices, lifestyle that, you know, Oxfam literally labels these emissions as something called lifestyle emissions. So what people do in their in their lives, like driving a car or how they heat their home or if they eat meat or if they fly and these kinds of things that are attached to a carbon footprint accounting analysis that's really focused on consumption. Um, and so that is one way to look at class. And, and as you suggested, in the kind of classical Marxist analysis, class is really not about your income per se. Um, it's about your relationship to the means of production. And it's basically also about like 
what you own and how you generate the money or income that makes your consumption possible in the first place. And from that perspective, you get you get an idea that there's a very small minority of people that own capital and own businesses or own property and are able to generate income from that ownership. And there's a much larger percentage of society, uh, you could call it the working class, who doesn't own very much and owns the main thing they own is their their labor power that they sell on the market for an income or for a wage or for a salary and and that's how they generate the money they need to to access the things they need to live so this kind of class analysis that focuses on production leads to much different kind of much different analysis of of carbon inequality i would say so there's a lot of things you can say the first the first thing we might want to point out is that the whole idea of a carbon footprint that is attached to consumption practices was itself concocted by owners of fossil fuel production. <laughs> so it's known that British Petroleum invented the idea of a carbon footprint in 2004, and and they continually promote this kind of idea of consumers should f- should think about how they can pitch in on the climate fight and how they can lower their carbon footprint. And they they've tweeted about you know these carbon footprint tools. And there's been more substantial analysis showing that the fossil fuel industry is very very happy to promote this narrative that climate change is a problem of consumption and a problem of, of dispersed consumer behaviors. And, and we just need to get everyone to kind of change their behaviors because that takes the attention off the owners of fossil fuel production. The second thing we can say is that any moment of carbon-based consumption, like when you're driving a car, we really need to, as geographers like to do, think relationally about that moment and understand that that moment of consumption is not you're not the only one involved in that transaction. So you bought that gasoline from, again, for-profit producers who are making all the money off that transaction. And not to mention like car companies and tire companies and, uh, and lubricants and all the stuff that goes into that moment. The, so every moment of consumption has along the commodity chain, all these for-profit producers that are making all the money. And so what I would suggest is that our class analysis should really say that those people making all the money off these transactions are definitely way more responsible than you, the sort of consumer who's just trying to make it to work or trying to pick up their children at daycare or whatever it is. And yet carbon footprint analysis puts 100% of the emissions on those consumers and, and, and it just erases the role and the power and the profits of those owners of production. Now, the final thing I'd say is that Again, I hinted at this before, but uh, again, this 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 way of thinking that says the worst thing that the rich do is 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 in their is in their consumption realm. Like if they drive a Hummer, or if they fly in a private jet, or if they eat steak, that again completely ignores the activity that leads to the money that makes that consumption possible. And so, if you take an example of a CEO of a fossil fuel company who might spend eight to 12 hours a day organizing a global network of fossil fuel extraction uh, uh, production um, uh, projects, whose only goal is to sort of dig this stuff out of the ground and generate profits from it. You would have to say that that activity has way more climate impact than the steak they eat at night or the Hummer they drive from work home in. But yet this carbon inequality from Oxfam or Thomas Piketty, this analysis that uses carbon footprints just 
only looks at the stake in the Hummer and ignores their role as an owner of capital um, profiting off fossil fuels. And, and moreover, like from this way of analyzing the problem, you, you, would, you could even say that, like, say Brad Pitt, a Hollywood actor, um, has a big house and drives a big car. He could have a higher carbon footprint than a fossil fuel executive. Uh, say that fossil fuel executive takes public transit and, and, and actually is a vegetarian. Uh, would we say that Brad Pitt is more responsible for climate change than the fossil fuel executive? No, we wouldn't. But this way of thinking actually leads to numbers that would say we would. Um, so anyway, it's sorry for the long winded, <laughs> but it's, oh, that's, it's that's great. Yeah. So yeah, it's just it's well there. yeah, it's 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 just a sort of it's a skewed way of thinking about class and inequality and climate that turns all attention away from the, the owners of, of production. Yeah. And so then once we put our focus on the, you know, the uh, capital owning class and, you know, particularly ones in like the fossil fuel sector uh, as the ones that are, are really responsible for uh, climate change, another point that you make is, and this is another kind of classically Marxist idea, I think, is that it's not that these people are just like greedy jerks who are being like bad people, that there's the, the logic of the capitalist system is behind the decisions that they're making and the way that they, uh, you know, are using this capital to produce fossil fuels and, and uh global warming emissions and stuff. So can you talk a bit about that, that logic of extracting this surplus value uh, that is kind of behind uh, the climate change problem. Yeah, I think the way I put it in the book is that capitalists are not like you and me. <laughs> like You and me are like trying to sort of lower our carbon footprint. We think about it as this sort of moral equation about how we consume. And But for a capitalist, they, all they can worry about is if they're earning profit off their investment. You know, the way Marx put it is if you're investing money, are you coming out with more money at the end of the day? And that is the logic of capital. And and they are not only um, worried about whether or not they're going to make a profit, they're worried about, you know, most capitalists are in the context of a globally competitive environment where if they aren't, you know, um, reinvesting their capital or accumulating their capital in a way that improves their productive efficiency, they can lose out to market competition. So Marx referred to capitalists as living this very like anxious life where they're really worried about their investments and their returns and, and these kinds of things. Um, and so they're just operating on an entirely different logic of profit and competition. Whereas people that are, consuming in their everyday lives you know we consume commodities with the goal of fulfilling our needs right um and that's just a different logic a different um uh, sort of rationale and this really hit home to me in in some of the research i was doing on the industrial nitrogen fertilizer industry where i was able to talk to some of the managers that were involved in these really carbon intensive forms of nitrogen production it's called ammonia uh production and their most uh, uh, carbon intensive input for production of nitrogen is natural gas, um, which is a source of hydrogen that they need to make ammonia. And I asked them, you know, you know, for climate change, you would 
probably want to explore alternatives to natural gas and ask them if they had thought about that. And their answer was that, yes, they had thought about alternatives, but it was because in the early 2000s, natural gas prices actually spiked and were quite high. And a lot of fertilizer companies actually had to close down their factories because of high natural gas prices. It's estimated that natural gas uh, prices are like 70 to 80 percent of the cost of producing fertilizer. So it's a major issue. But when they explored alternatives, they did not look for the environmentally friendly alternative. They said that they were very close to replacing their factory to use not natural gas, but coal and pet coke. Pet coke is a byproduct of the petroleum refining process. Some of the two, both of those things are the most carbon heavy, intensive, mission intensive uh, things you could imagine. But again, from uh, the logic of capital, they're just replacing a high cost input with a lower cost input to maximize profits. And that's the logic that they're operating under. And, and they're quite indifferent to the material consequences of that for the planet and to the world because they're only focused on this 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 uh this goal of maximizing profits and accumulating those profits into expansion of their business. Yeah. And I wanted to ask you about this sort of deep dive you do into the fertilizer industry. So why did you choose to focus on that particular sector? It's a long story and it it's um, I've got a lot more research on the sector that I could fold into other projects. Um, because the nitrogen fertilizer industry is related to so much more than climate change, actually. Um, but it was uh, actually, as I mentioned before, my dissertation was on oil. And in the in the course of researching oil, I became really kind of interested in how oil as a substance actually leads to all these different other products that we often sort of refer to under the umbrella of petrochemicals and how the refining process can lead to this kind of multiplicity of different petrochemical products. And so I decided uh, because my dissertation and uh, first book was really focused on how these products circulate in the role in the, in the realm of consumption and everyday life, in this kind of suburban oil saturated way of living, I decided I wanted my next project to really focus on production uh, because I actually thought that there wasn't a lot in our field of geography and on kind of industrial production, despite the fact that this is, you know, a huge cause of a lot of our ecological problems. And so I've, I was really kind of thinking what I wanted to look at production. And then I thought, oh, I really want to dive deeper into petrochemical production. And then then I realized, well, wow, there's this one part of what could be called petrochemical production, although it relies less on oil and more on this other hydrocarbon natural gas, uh, fertilizer, nitrogen, which just is so embedded in all these different forces. Like I said before, it's it's responsible for some estimates say 2.5% of global carbon emissions. So it's a huge contributor to climate change, but it's also a massive contributor to eutrophication and, and what many, you know, scientists refer to as the kind of other planetary boundary wrapped up with the nitrogen cycle. And so you have all this agricultural application of this stuff that's leading to a lot of water pollution. Um, and also, I mean, it's, it's very much embedded in, in, in the kind of revolution and how we produced food that, um, you know, the famous energy analyst, uh, Vaclav Smell wrote a book on nitrogen called enriching the earth about the just dramatic 
gains we've been able to achieve in, in yields and in, in industrial mass food production through the application of this kind of synthetic fossil fuel based nitrogen fertilizer input. And so you, you link it to energy, to climate, to food. It's just got all these fascinating linkages. And, and I, I tried my best in the book to really kind of just hone in on the fact that this industry is really massively contributing to climate change. And, and, but there's really so many different directions you can take this analysis when you start looking at nitrogen for sure. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it a real POS? You need Shopify for retail from accepting payments to managing inventory. Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. All right, so we've talked a bit about the people that are responsible for climate change, but another big thing you're talking about in the book is the people who are trying to do something about climate change, so the, you know, the, the climate movement. And one of the points that you make is that uh, the current climate movement has kind of its core support and leadership coming from this professional managerial class. So people who are knowledge workers rather than being engaged in direct material production. And, you know, you and I as college professors were part of that the professional knowledge worker class. And I imagine a lot of our listeners are uh, as well. So that leads me to a, a two-part question. So first, what's the problem with having a climate movement that's so rooted in this professional knowledge worker kind of class? And then second, uh, what's our kind of job or role in moving toward a climate movement that's more centered on the working class, which is ultimately what you are, you're advocating for? Right. So... I've, first, I'll say the, the main problem I try to make, I, I try to make a pretty basic sort of democratic argument that if we're going to win large scale climate mitigation, we're going to need a mass movement. And if we're going to need a mass movement, we're going to really need a, a politics that appeals to the mass of the population and the majority. You know, it's a, I'm arguing um, there's been a lot of discussion in climate policy about how to sort of design the policy, how to but very rarely actually do people think about how can climate policy be popular <laughs> and how can it reach and, and speak to the, the real concerns of the masses of people in a very majoritarian democratic way. So from that basis, the one problem you can see with the professional class is they are a minority of the population. Uh, I define the professional class as a class of people that are using various kinds of credentials, mostly degrees of various sorts, but also, you know, you can think about licenses and different types of credentials that allow certain people to carve out advantages in the labor market in the context of a a barbarically unequal (laughs) neoliberal capitalist environment where, as we know, the middle class is being destroyed and the rich are getting richer and, and extreme poverty is growing. So the professional class actually explodes in the kind of post-World War II era and beyond with the expansion expansion of higher education um, as more and more people are getting these kind of credentials that are seen as a kind of necessity to kind of, again, carve out these advantages in the labor market. But still today, if you look around uh at, you know, one estimate is the professional occupations are about 22% of the workforce. Uh, you can look at the very basic statistic that a third of uh, Americans 
um, have a college degree, maybe a little bit more nowadays. About so, essentially, if you're if you're roughly saying about sixty three to sixty five percent of Americans don't have a college degree, you're you're talking about the the majority, two thirds of society, roughly who don't have these credentials, who aren't in these professional occupations, who are sort of stuck in this kind of low-wage uh, sector. So so that's the problem, is that um, this professional class really doesn't, isn't itself going to yield a mass majoritarian movement. Now, I, what I do want to say is that it, it, it there's no problem in itself of professionals doing climate politics or doing politics in general. And if you look at the history of kind of mass working class movements and socialist movements that have been, have been able to kind of build power at a mass level, they always have these professional class people in, in the parties or in the trade unions. Or, and, and those people are formative in those types of movements. But what I'm trying to point out in the book is that this particular kinds of professional class climate politics really do appeal to the professionals themselves. And they really... Uh, uh, get a lot of approval and validation from those other professionals, but they don't have wider mass appeal. They don't speak to the material concerns of the wider mass of the working class. And so there's a couple a couple points that I try to make on that front. The first is, as you've probably heard, I mean, a lot of climate politics is really obsessed with climate as a struggle over knowledge, over belief or denial, over the science, over how we need to believe the science. And that is obviously important because the science is crucial to how we even understand the whole phenomenon of climate change. But obviously that appeals to highly educated people, but it doesn't necessarily, again, speak to the the needs of the masses of people who are working in these low-wage jobs who are really struggling to get by. I mean, this is, since I wrote the book, this, in, this inflation is making it much, much harder for people to just uh, pay for their, their, their basic energy needs, their food needs, their rent, which is skyrocketing. So um, the second thing is that the professional class, what I argue is if we want to focus this sort of class analysis on production, we should point out that these knowledge workers and these mental workers are quite sort of by definition, separated from industrial production, quite distanced from industrial production. And what I argue in the book is that leads to a professional class style of politics that is actually really fixated on their own consumption, on consumption being the driver of climate change. And I call this a kind of carbon guilt that afflicts the professional class where as I try to point out in the book, we really should be pointing the attention on the owners of capital, but professionals tend to blame themselves for for flying, for uh, eating meat, or for all these carbon-intensive lifestyle practices. And so what that leads to is a polit- what I call a politics of less, a politics that we need to reduce uh, consumption, we need to, degr- we need to degrow everything. And in that politics of less, you know, unfortunately has a lot of overlap with what you could call the kind of like many decades of neoliberal austerity that um, essentially the since um, Reagan in the United States came to power, the kind of mantra has been, you know, whether you're a worker or the government or unions that we just need to do more with less. Right. And so this kind of austerity logic fits very well with this kind of uh, environmental politics of, of less. Um, but, you know, again, this, politics of less is not going to have wider appeal 
than um, among these professionals who are really anxious about their participation in these consumption practices and worried about their own complicity in the climate breakdown. The, the masses of people are already living with less and struggling with less. And, and I, I would argue we need, need a politics of more, need a politics that really speaks to how we can build structures and power systems that give them more economic security. So kind of the, the famous um, slogan that really concretizes a lot of this is that um, kind of classically out of touch climate technocratic policy is the carbon tax. We're going to like internalize the cost of climate change and the emissions with a, a tax on carbon was implemented in, in France by a uh, very neoliberal uh President uh, Emmanuel Macron, and that led not to large-scale carbon mitigation. It led to large-scale revolt of the French working class in this sort of gilet jaune, yellow vest uh, movement that took to the streets and did a ton of militant uh, direct action resistance against these carbon taxes. And one of their slogans was that politicians care about the end of the world, but we just care about the end of the month. Some of them more radically would say end of the world, end of the month, same struggle, which is kind of cool because it's talking about how these are connected, which I would agree with actually. But but there is this sense that this politics of climate change as, as this crisis coming soon, and that's about science and knowledge, it doesn't always speak to these end of the month struggles about rent, about housing, about energy cost. And, and that's where the mass of people in neoliberal capitalist countries are are at. They're dealing with austerity. They're dealing with wage stagnation. They're dealing with debt. And so uh, this politics of less really isn't going to speak to those masses of people. So in, in both cases, we kind of have uh, a, a style of climate politics that is highly appealing amongst the credentialed professional classes, but is not quite able to to, re- to really speak to the, the concerns of the mass of the working class. So a lot of what you're saying there sounds a lot like the arguments that were made for the Green New Deal. Um, I was wondering if you could kind of talk about, you know, what's what's similar similar and or different between what you're calling for and the Green New Deal idea. I think there's just a lot of similarities in the sense that I, I really did feel like there was a breakthrough um, around 2018 when... Uh, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez sat in with the Sunrise Movement um, in Nancy Pelosi's office demanding large-scale climate action under the name of Green New Deal. And I remember they had these signs that said, Green Jobs for All. And to me, that just straight up, like, finally, like, you had, like, a very clear economic message about jobs for all. You know, it kind of, it, it spoke to kind of maybe the the success of Bernie Sanders' 2016 uh, presidential bid where he was talking a lot about Medicare for all and, um, you know, uh, higher education for all. And this kind of like broad universal public goods vision of of benefits for all. And so once that kind of happened, you started to see more and more people talking about a Green New Deal as as something that was going to solve the two crises we really face in our society, which are inequality and you know, again, the, the the sort of widening power of the capitalist class and the, the erosion of power of everyone else and climate change. You're going to solve inequality and climate change at the same time by this robust kind of um, um, 
you know, recapitulation in many ways of the original New Deal, which was, again, dealing with a crisis of, 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 of the capitalist system and collapse and decided to really, um, you know, center jobs programs and uh, union rights and uh, ro- robust universal public goods. Uh, the, the Tennessee Valley Authority, which was set up under the New Deal, had the slogan itself, electricity for all, and they were about delivering electricity to rural areas that private capital would not service. And so um, I actually think that's exactly what I'm talking about, like uh, a, a big kind of broad vision of public goods for all uh, that would increase economic security um, is something we should be thinking of. Because if you actually look at the climate crisis, you know, we need we know we need to rapidly decarbonize um, transportation. Uh, we need to rapidly, uh, you know, insulate and weatherize our homes. We need to rapidly decarbonize the electricity system. We need to rapidly decarbonize the food system. All of these systems are actually related to working class needs. Working class people struggle to afford food. They struggle to afford utility bills. They struggle to afford uh, probably above all housing these days. And all these things could be folded into a kind of Green New Deal project and green public housing or green public transit. Or um, I think the key, as I talk about later, the key sector is electricity. If we're going to decarbonize, um, it's it goes through the electric sector. So um, why not have a decarbonization program that also if offers cheaper electricity, if not you know, socialists would dream of decommodified electricity as a human right. Um, this kind of vision can actually be about delivering material benefits to the working class through these kind of through decarbonization itself. Um, so, I was very excited by, by all this activity. Now, as we know, I mean, the, a lot of the Green New Deal was was just basically about a lot of policy proposals. You know. AOC famously introduced a resolution, a non-binding resolution into Congress. And that's not the same thing as actually winning these types of programs. And I think if we're being honest, we have to understand that the Green New Deal movement, it was actually introduced that resolution in the spring or actually late winter of 2019 with the idea that this vision document would become a policy document that presidential candidates were going to we're going to basically campaign around. And that's exactly what happened. You, you've basically got um, Bernie Sanders becoming the kind of Green New Deal candidate. The Sunrise Movement got fully behind Bernie Sanders. And, uh, but unfortunately, <laughs> Bernie Sanders lost. The Green New, candidate, Green New Deal candidate lost. And then Joe Biden won. And he not only won, but he won by disavowing the Green New Deal in the late days of the general election campaign versus Donald Trump. He basically said, I don't support the Green New Deal. So and then he's he's followed up on that by basically proposing a climate package that has now basically failed. But even if it had succeeded, most of what was proposed in the Build Back Better legislation on the climate uh, uh, side was basically a lot of tax credits for private energy uh, companies to invest in renewables, which is a far afield from this kind of New Deal vision of public sector investment and public investment in decarbonization. Um, And so essentially, the Green New Deal was kind of a very high level gambit at 
um, winning state power in the 2020 cycle. It failed. And uh, it's, I, you know, I think it, that kind of realignment of, of American politics where a left, a left movement could win state power might still be in the cards and, and, uh, a couple years or maybe more, more likely, maybe, maybe eight to 10 years down the line, but that's not really on the table right now. Um, and again, if we're being honest about it, you know, if you look back to the original new deal, it's not like FDR proposed all these really beneficial working class programs because he's a good guy. (laughs) It took massive working class organization, you know, the real things we think of of New Deal policy really didn't happen until 1935, and oh, lo and behold, 1934 saw probably the one of the largest strike waves in U.S. history, where you know there was general strikes shutting down San Francisco, Minneapolis, uh, massive strikes in the textile sector all along the Atlantic coast, or just the Atlantic region, um, and so. You know, you had a huge amount of working class activity and pressure and strikes that pushed the Roosevelt administration to really propose a much more radical New Deal um, in, uh, that actually gave unions more rights and things like this. So um, if we want a Green New Deal, we probably need to realize that we actually need a much more organized and powerful working class on the ground to begin with than just thinking we can just sort of shortcut our way to this this type of victory through a presidential campaign because that's generally not how it works usually you build the organization and power first and then you might see electoral victories down the line all right well i think that's a maybe a good note to end that uh portion of the interview on and move on to our uh traditional final question which is what are you working on next so i have to admit i'm still trying to figure that out. (laughs) Um, I'm very blissfully going to be on research leave in the fall. And I'm kind of, I, you know, I, I've, like I said, at the start of the interview, I'm really enjoying writing more publicly for more sort of in these sort of public debates over climate politics. So actually that's my goal for this leave is to try to do that more regularly, maybe blog more or or whatever, <laughs> or, or, or write more for outlets like Jacobin. Um, down the line, um, I this nitrogen stuff I mentioned before, I have all this data that I think eventually I'd like to do a historical monograph on, particularly fixated on the decision in World War II to basically build a bunch of nitrogen plants for the war to, to, to uh, funnel into it basically munitions production, because nitrogen is really crucial for that as well. And then they decide to sell all these fertilizer or sorry, nitrogen plants to the private sector for fertilizer production after the war. And that kind of locked in this kind of um, huge explosion of nitrogen in our post-World War II agricultural system. So there's a really interesting story to tell there. I also am always more scholarly, really focused a lot on Marxist theory and I'm also contemplating doing a kind of more theoretical scholarly work on trying to think about a theory of energy from a Marxist perspective and, 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 and also sort of a historical materialist perspective on, on energy. So those are some of the ideas floating around in my head, but I'm still trying to recover from the semester and, and so forth. 
All right. Well, those all sound like interesting projects. Uh, so uh, thank you so much for coming on the show. Thanks so much for having me, and great to talk to you again after so long, Stentor. You just heard a conversation with Matthew Huber, author of Climate Change as Class War, Building Socialism on a Warming Planet, published this year by Verso.